Paul West, welcome back to the show, my brother. Oh, so good to be back, Joey. I was, what, what episode will this be, you reckon? I was back, I was on 68. Fuck yes, you were. Well, with this will be almost uh, almost double that. This will be like episode 134, I believe. Oh, wow. There you yeah. go. How Pretty about that? Very close. Two off bloody what, being what, what, double over. What would that be, 136? Yeah. Oh, hey, we go. can push it. I can <laughs> squeeze <laughs> nah, a couple in cool, forehead. Cool. <laughs> well, that's good. No, that's, it's amazing hey, to be back. Not a lot of people get the get the invite the I second know. time. Jeez, I feel privileged. You... I've, I was blown away by the people that told me the episode. Like, I loved the episode we did back then. Like, it was, it was a fucking, you're such an enjoyable guy to talk to. But I was blown away at the people who t- also told me that that was their favorite episode. Really? I got like, like buff dudes I know who run gyms and shit who were like, bro, your best episode was with Paul West. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, what did you like about it? And they're like, he's just a fucking cool guy. Ah. Oh. Thanks, I, Buff Gimona dudes out there listening to this one. Right? Because, <laughs> you know, I was expecting the people like, oh, you know, I'm really into gardening and yeah. Paul really spoke to me or, you know, oh, I watched his show or whatever. But yeah, the dudes are just like, he's a fucking good guy. I mean, uh, thanks. Mate, oh, I'm blushing now. <laughs> mate, last time we caught up, and we've, we had a little bit of brekkie together just now and a bit yes. of chat, but uh, last time we caught up was fresh off the back of the bushfires. Correct. Um, you and your family had been through some turbulent times with that. Yes. We've now... It was, we're still in this pandemic piece. But we've just come off a second lockdown. You're down at Bermagui. Can you kind of talk on what it's like, what the situation's been like? Okay. It, do you guys, I'm, I'm guessing for you guys, the bushfire scar is still very fresh. Yeah. For us city dwellers, yes. it's like a distant memory. Yeah, it, was a, it wasn't a bit smoky in January a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of like taking up a lot of the news feed. So uh, I think it's like worth just laying out there initially that that uh, there was no damage to any property that I own or no one in my family was in immediate danger. That Though the town that I live in, Bermagui, population 2,500, certainly was a focal point of national media attention given what happened, what happened in Cabago. So we... Um, you know, we went to bed on the 30th of December 2019 uh, and, you know, distant glow in the background, uh, checking the fires near me app, you know, it's not going to get anywhere near within 50 kilometres of us overnight. It's moving, yeah, but it's not an immediate threat. Wake up the next morning at, you know, we, it was Christmas, we had like 20 people in our house for, you know, every, all the families and friends came and visited and we kind of woke up a bit hungover in the dark and I thought, oh, jeez, I want to get out of bed four o'clock in the morning for, you know, I'm going back to sleep. And I look out my bedroom window and I can see all this like red and blue flashing coming in through the curtains. I'm like, what's a bit weird? What's going on there? I look at my phone uh, and it's eight o'clock, but it's pitch black. Uh, and I'll see all these messages on my phone and I, cause I sleep with it on silent. I don't want any beeps or buzzes when I'm, you know, when I'm sleeping, I open it up and it's a cascade of messages from the RFS getting progressively worse to the last one, which says, leave your home now and get to the beach, <laughs> which Fuck. I forgot about 15 minutes ago. And we've got 20 people in our house, so I kind of go immediate survival mode, get up, get everyone up, get everyone organised, get the kids up, get everyone together, go out and gather some information, you know, from uh, from the community on foot. Uh, and and is it people on the street? Like, Oh, man. So, like okay, so, you know, we live near our local sporting field. And so anyone, you know, who wasn't familiar with what happened there, the fire front burnt over the township of Cabago. I think Cabago's got about 1,000 people at about 4.35am. So everyone that was evacuated from there and all the surrounding bushland out the back had been brought into Bermagui and our local footy field, which is lucky to have, you know, two people on it for 99.9% of the year, except when the breakers are playing a home game. 
it was it was it had about four and a half thousand people on it. So there was like there was vans, trailers, trucks, there were horses, donkeys, goats, uh, and you know that it quadrupled the population of the township at eight o'clock in the morning. And we kind of got I got, went and got a bit of like recon from you know because I'm I'm a neighbour to the local police commander and I know all the guys from the surf club and the RFS country living you know you kind of got direct access to these people <laughs> and they were just in full like emergency mode but i managed to kind of get some info out of them and that it was coming though we had about 20 minutes before the fire front hit town and you could see wow. it you could see it you could see the 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 glowing the, the growing orange glow over the northwest horizon of the township there's a little ridge that runs behind the back of town and then, you know, then you kind of get all these other sensory things happening where, you know, you say get burning gum leaves falling on the roof. You know, you start to get this like that. I'll never forget that staccato sound of gum leaves falling on the roof, like tink, 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 tink. Uh, you know, and they've got embers on them. They're kind of burning. And that's from embers in the air coming from the fire Correct. front? Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, was mo- it, was, it had such an updraft and was creating its own weather and pushing those flaming, you know, ember leaves out the front. Uh, and then there would be the, the, the kind of symphony, uh, the kind of, you know, macabre symphony of every single bird in that bushland because it's about, you know, 100 kilometres of bushland out the back. Uh, escaping ahead of the fire front. So there's like this cacophony of sound for all the birds trying to escape the fire front as well. And then so on top of that, the pyrocumulus thunderstorm kicks off overhead. So it's like end of days. What's that? So it's the, so when a, a really intense fire creates so much updraft that it actually creates like a cumulonimbus thunderhead, but it's called a pyrocumulus cloud. So it's essentially like an instant thunderstorm like a really violent light like it creates lightning and thunder and but not rain it's no dry rain. it's purely from the the like this the friction of the updraft from the Holy bushfire shit. so wild absolutely wild thousands of people everywhere and i remember sitting on my roof with a hose kind of ready you know getting around inside safe getting an evacuation plan to the beach. Fire's ass. yeah that's it come on <laughs> come on come on come on and you know sitting there listening to all this and seeing the rfs trucks like driving up and down the street on the loudspeaker to be like, get out of your house, go to the beach now, get out of your homes, go to the beach now. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is pointy. <laughs> you know, this is, this is really going down in a big way. And then we were so, you know, kind of fortunate that there was a, a southerly change came through and just, it just put it all to sleep temporarily, you know, kind of kicked the can down the road a bit. So, I mean, that was, that's kind of just set the, the scene of what, our experience was we couple that with the you know an evacuation with young kids and it was it was crazy times but you know when something when something like that happens in a community i think the immediate response is galvanization like there's this kind of really strong you know banding together and i mean there's a really interesting juxtaposition here that 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 i'll tell you about and so when when the bushfire was coming, people had to get emergency supplies, right? They had to go to the supermarket. No power, no phone reception. The supermarket was just giving away water and food, you know, and they, 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 had, they had no cash facility, no power. And they, and they had to give a lot of it away because all their fridges were off. Power didn't get put back on for, I think, 10 days. And so, and, but there were, like there was lots of people there. You could see people were deeply panicked, you know, like, like crazy, you know, like this could go pear-shaped really quickly given the amount of anxiety and panic in people's faces. But there was kind of like this over-the-top politeness that people realised that, like, that, that this is a very fragile situation and it could easily descend into a riot very, very quickly. Right. Uh, and so there was like, oh, no, no, you know, you grab that water. Oh, no, no, okay, no, okay, great, right. Everyone was very <laughs> polite and great. 
Whereas you, you kind of juxtapose that to the pandemic <laughs> where there was this invisible threat uh, and it wasn't as you know, immediate and tangible as, say, a fire front and it was the polar opposite. People are <laughs> punching on over toilet paper, you know? Like, it's <laughs> yes. crazy. Even, like, I don't know, even having, at your end of even, town. Even in our end of town, even down in, even down in the country, like because it was the invisible threat. And so when you can't, when there's no tangible threat, I feel like that, that it kind of gets people's defences up much more and even another person in the same boat is kind of falls under that category of the invisible threat. But where you've got a united, like, here comes a fire, here comes the apocalypse, then everyone can be like, okay, there's a bit of solidarity. We're all in this together. Yeah. So, I mean, so initially, really great community solidarity. And then, you know, I think everyone became very well-versed, you know, at least in some way uh, in mental health first aid. And I know that's something that you guys have done a lot of work with here at Jungle Brothers, which is amazing to see people driving that conversation in a context, you know, where... You don't have to do that. You're a gym owner. You don't have to like help people deepen their conversation around mental health first aid. It's, but it's an amazing and proactive thing that you guys do here. Uh, and so people got pretty good at that. But I mean, some of the trauma there, it's just, it's so deep. You know, like you can't, you, it's really hard to comprehend. And I mean, I'm, I certainly miss the worst of it. You know, that, the experience that I shared was, was as bad as it got for me, you know. Yeah. Bit wild, bit crazy. I'll remember it forever. It was, some, you know, stressful, but, you know, never really threatened deeply, you know. Yeah, right. Whereas, like, I had friends that, that you know, that were calling their other friends saying, I'm going to die and I want to I say goodbye. In the, they're in the car. Wow. They're in the car escaping this fire front at three o'clock in the morning. It's burning all around them. They literally think they're going to die. Wow. They're like, I'm never going to escape this. Like, please tell blah, blah, I love them. Holy shit. Like, this is it for me. Or mates that like stayed, they live right out in the bush and they stayed to defend their property. And, you know, they saw it, you know, tear down an escarpment, you know, like a, a 500 meter elevation mountain in like five minutes. Jesus. And then surround their house uh, and then burn their shed and then burn everything and burn right up to their house and when they decided to kind of get out of there and they're escaping that you know so a lot of really deep-seated trauma and i mean it felt like there was and there was it didn't feel like it there was a huge um national outpouring of support for that uh, for people in those affected communities i mean you have a look at like celeste barber's fundraising that was amazing it was like you know Millions and millions and millions of dollars, heaps of amazing donations. Heaps she, of she had issues actually getting that money. Yeah, didn't she? Like yeah, bureaucracy. So, like yeah. So I think the, the the problem was that she initially pitched it to uh, uh, on the, the the fundraising page. It was linked to one organisation. I think it was like New South Wales RFS. Correct me anyone if I'm wrong on that. And so then when it was came to the end of it, and there was all this money, and they were kind of like, well, we'd like to share this money a little bit more broadly, but in the kind of rules and regulations of the that website that they the platform they're like well you designated that organization and that's who it's got to go to ah okay so that was the challenge i think is like you know and that's that's that makes sense to protect you know it's like yeah. oh i want to raise it for this trading oh by the way i've also got a holiday account going on yeah, i'd like to transfer it to, to yeah you know <laughs> so that made sense but i don't think that ever had anything like that happen before and then you know of course the pandemic rolled around you know so that was um that was almost in the immediate aftermath of the of the bushfires. We kind of had this the fires, you know, the the ones that everyone talk about happened on, you know, New Year's Eve uh, of 2019, 2020. But the fires weren't extinguished in our community. They weren't out till mid-February. Wow. So they were kind of burning and threatening. There was probably another subsequent three or four events 
that, that where the fire threatened the town again. Yep. So there was this lingering menace. You know, it was smoky as hell. You know, like it's I know because I, I actually came through Sydney and, and was in Melbourne for a little bit during that summer period, and it was smoky. Yeah, it was like around you, like oh, this fire's about. But like down there, it was just thick. It was soup. It just sat over everything for for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, That's an interesting visual. Just to go back to what you said in the beginning about the like it was pitch black at eight a.m. Mm, yeah, and I think like when for me and I'm sure for a lot of city folks when you when you try to imagine what it's like. And you're like, yep, like I've been, I've been to these, you know, regional towns and yep, there's like fucking tree lines as far as you can see and fire rolling in. But you forget that like you don't have vision. Yeah. Like you tend to think like it's daytime yeah. and that there's a fire burning. You can see it, you're sweet. Yeah, because like oh, I've been on out there on hot days, but it's like, no, it's, you can't see shit. It's Man. smoke in your face. Well, I had no appreciation for it myself. I'd never, I'd never been anywhere near a bushfire before until that experience. And I, I think what I assumed is when you see the footage on TV, it's like, oh, they're always filming in the dark. Like it's, oh, they're always shooting the bushfires at night because you always see the flames whipping up around the trucks. No, it's the middle of the day. Yeah, right. It's just that's how dark it gets. Like wow. it is literally pitch black, black out the sun. No, not, you know, middle of the day, the sun can't even punch through the smoke. It's so thick. Um, it's unbelievable. Unnerving. Amazing. Really. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, again, I can say this from a position where I was very fortunate to avoid harm uh, or loss, that it was, it was a crazy thing to live through, you know. And, I mean, again, I feel so deeply, you know, sorry for the people that, that lost homes or lost loved ones or, you know, or were injured psychologically or physically from it. It's a, it's a wild beast, you know. It's, you never, it's very rare that you get to experience something so powerful, you know. It's, Australia's pretty benign, you know, as a continent. It is. It is. And, I, I mean, it, it's, it's strange, though, because we know that bushfires are a part of this land. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, right. And we kind of just always, I don't know, seems like collectively we've always turned a blind eye to it. Mm. I mean, it's funny when you drive through regional places and this was only brought to my mind around the bushfires, but, you know, you'd be driving out in the country and you see places that are built like in the middle of a bunch of, like in the middle of the bush. Yeah. And there's like no clearing between the house and the trees. And, you, and it's like, without that bushfire happening, you wouldn't see that as a hazard. Yeah. But now it's like, holy shit, that house is like under threat. Yeah. And I, and I guess it's just whatever maybe we've lived uh, through a period where that threat was it didn't rear its head mm. so we never really had to consider it and then you know and whether that's whether that happens like i don't know you were talking before about some of the older people in the town yes who had seen this shit happen like yeah. earlier on in their lives but most people in their 40s 50s have never encountered never it, have it. they never seen it you know so there was no real frame of of reference to to respond to it and i don't think really that anyone in, in australia had any comprehension of the scale and ferocity of what was happening over that summer. I mean, the RFS were, were stretched so thin, like incredibly so, because there was, there was fires up the whole East Coast. Yeah. All the way through to Kangaroo Island, you know, from Kangaroo Island to Noosa was at some point in that summer period on fire. Yeah. And so when once it, there was, after the initial big burn that took Cabago, there was a, another projected day where, where it was anticipated to burn over Bermagui. And they... Um, so they recommended everyone got out. My family and I evacuated there. I've got two young kids. I'm like, you know, it's not worth it for us. We're like, we're just going to get out because we're, we, you know, we we're fortunate to have the means to be able to do that. Uh, but the, from the, our friends that stayed, they were like, the, the RFS said, we can have, we can take no responsibility for you if you're here. Don't call us because we're so stretched. All we can do, we're going to defend the school, the club, and the petrol station. Mm. That's it. 
And we've got that, all of our resources. That's all we can do. If your house is on fire, I'm sorry. There's, we're not going to... Don't call. Don't call. Wow. Because there's absolutely nothing we can do. And everyone, we suggest, bases themselves at the country club because that's the only place that we'll be defending. Wow. Oh, you know, just to hear that, just like, yeah. you know what? Yeah, a couple of hundred houses in town, maybe more, maybe 500 houses. Yeah, no, nah, don't care. Wow. I mean, we do care, but we're literally not in yeah. a position to be able to do anything. So, I mean, and what I guess what the really interesting thing was is that that the exposure to the vulnerability of things that we take for granted, like um, like communication, tele- telecommunication. So all the, the mobile phone towers in the surrounding bushland, you know, all on the mountaintops around, burnt, gone. Uh, and so you're kind of going to these community meetings where you've got 500 people and an RFS officer standing on a, you know, a milk crate addressing the town about what's happening, about what people should be doing. And, you know, they're telling people to be like, oh, get, you know, get information from the RFS app. It's like, well, my phone, we haven't had power for two days and we don't have mobile phone reception, even if someone does have power. So we, um, the only information that we were receiving from the outside world, other than at these community meetings, was AM radio in the car. Huh. So we'd go out to the car. Turn Why on, AM? Well, because that was the FM towers had burnt down. Right. So the AM, the ABC, our local ABC in the southeast, has a couple of frequencies because it's such a big patch. Uh, and usually where we are, it's on the FM band, but AM travels a lot further. So we kind of got the crackly AM updates. Wow. And that was, that's the only information that we had about road closures. I mean, the South Coast, it was January, right? It's a tourist destination. Full of tourists. And it's really hard to uh, – there's not a lot of roads in and out of the South Coast. You know, you've kind of got the Princess Highway coming from the north and then, you know, or alternatively coming from Victoria in the south. And then you've got uh, Kings Highway or Brown Mountain to get, you know, to Canberra or to Cooma. So it was blocked to the north for the fires around Milton, blocked to the south for the fires at Eden. Kings Highway was out because of the fires there. So the, the, the 50 to 100,000 people that were holidaying on the south coast plus the south coast residents that had to evacuate had one road to do it on. Wow. It was, it was insane. Like in our house, you know, we kind of live near the turnoff where it goes through Bermagui and it was this unbroken exodus of people, traffic one way, caravans, boats, 24 hours, just an unbroken line of traffic. Of people just trying to get, get to out. somewhere else. Get out, yeah, yeah just right. to get out. Wow, it's like, in the, when, you, when am I ever going to – well, hopefully I'll never see something like that again. But just those vulnerabilities that we weren't expected, you know, the, the, the ability to actually use a car to leave. Yeah. And if you didn't have fuel, still without power. So the servo pumps don't work. Oh, wow. So they couldn't Because they require electricity. Yeah, and, and yeah, they require electricity. Or the, or the refuel trucks couldn't get through if the if the um, you know server had a generator to pump, you know the, the once the tanks were empty that's done. Yeah. You know? So there were, we were, you know, once it came to evacuation, there's people like going around the community going, can you spare a quarter of a tank of fuel so I can get to Bega, which wow. is like an hour drive south, and we're siphoning fuel, you know, at two a.m. in the morning out of cars into other cars so people can you know put their kids in there and hopefully get to the next town on a quarter of a tank of fuel. Wow. Crazy, you know, yeah. with no information. You know, what's the fighter? We don't know. So crazy. But I mean, I think what I've really appreciated afterwards, and again, kind of speaking to that like galvanising community effect, is that I think a lot of people have recognised that there's there's a critical need for grassroots organisation in this kind of thing, that you can't necessarily 
rely on the government organisations. I mean, they're doing the best they can, not to detract from the RFS or the local police or the local fire service. Gomo came back from Hawaii. He, he did. I mean, that's putting it on the line. Yeah. He, he got straight down there. He got straight to Cabago and forced some handshakes. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's, that's, a, that's my community. You know, like Cabago is like the, you know, 20-minute driveway, but they're, they're where a part of what's known as the triangle. Okay. So that's like, that's, we know those people, you know, yeah. that, that, that like are abusing him with their goats or, <laughs> or having their handshakes forced upon. So like it was- Giving him the limp fish. Yeah. Oh, insane, you know, and really disheartening, you know, to see that that was, that was the, the federal leadership on it, a PR, you know, a PR opportunity. And then of course the nationally broadcast, you know, TVC, the next day about we're doing this and we're doing that, you know, yeah. with the images that that media team picked up on their visit to Cabago. Yeah. The liberals, that way we're taking care of it. I was like, wow, that's, that's a, that's a slick operation. <laughs> if they, you know, I'm totally ethically opposed to it, but I mean, that that's, whoa, they don't muck around. They kind of get in, get the photo op, make an ad, get out, get it on national TV the next day. For anyone that, that, you know, didn't see that on the news or maybe, you know, not from Oz, there was yeah footage of the the prime minister going to Kabago yeah and he's and he's and he's in there and there's these like there's these RFS officers who have been out there fighting fires yeah they're fatigued they're like you know they're 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 broken individuals man and he's there he's fresh off a plane from Hawaii where yeah. he's on family with his holidays and he's trying to shake hands and there, and there's just there was a couple of key scenes where guys are like I don't want to shake your hand yeah I and he's like come on you know and he's like picking up their hand off their lap oh. it was it was awful. <laughs> That is probably the most cringeworthy scene in Australian politics, like in the history of Australian politics. And I mean, he's kind of matching it now with his performance at, you know, at G20 and the COP26, who are kind of forcing handshakes and photo ops on, on international leaders with, the, in, with his kind of camera crew in tow. Uh, but, you know, I think, well, I think it made a lot of people realise that some level of grassroots organisation is very important. And, and, and now there's been this kind of great level of information sharing and discussion around plans, around, you know, around what people do should that happen again and, and who, are, who are the people that you can immediately connect with in your community? How do you get organised? I mean, the, how, do you, how do you deal with that influx of, of people in crisis? Like our surf club now is like an emergency shelter. Like it's still a surf club, but they've got, they've got this funding for all the under, underfloor cavity to be turned into like emergency storage for crisis stuff like mattresses, water, toilet paper, spare food. And so now okay. I, I feel like, and they've got a massive, you know, 10 kilowatt generator. I don't I just made that up, 10 kilowatt, but they've got a massive generator so that, you know, should everything go down, uh, they've, got, they've got that power too. And they've got a little, you know, mobile cell tower as well that they can whip out to give people at least one access point for, for phone communication. So it feels like it's inevitable, right? It's coming again because anyone who's got a, a kind of basic understanding of Australian, um, you know, floral or ecology knows that fire begets fire. You know, you burn a landscape, it's more likely to burn. So it's, I mean, that, that kind of... Because it adapts to the fire? Yeah, it, it, exactly. And I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some challenging, you know, discussion around landscape management, you know, using indigenous practices to, to, to reduce that fuel load. But there, you know, it, it, it's not as simple as that. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not as simple as just saying, well, let's do like checkerboard burning or, you know, or, or cultural burning. And that's, that's the solving of the problem. Because, you know, especially when we have a big burn like this, followed by what's been a really amazing two years weather-wise. Like, we're so lucky to have gone into basically two La Nina summers 
because you can only imagine what it would be like if that rain, big rain in February hadn't come after the fires, it could still be burning down there. Yeah. You know, if it hadn't, you know, it could just still be lurking around yeah. looking to burn every last thing. So, but luckily, really great season. So the, the bushes were covered by pioneer species like black wattle and they, they kind of grow really quickly, really densely uh, to a height of about two metres. Uh, and then, you know, in a normal circumstance, they, like, they kind of outcompete each other eventually. That density thins, some of that material comes down, forms soil on the ground, blah, 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 forest, forest regenerates. But what it is now is a two metre tall fire blanket over the entire bushland or, or flammable blanket. So at the moment it's quite wet because we've got a good season. Because it's dry? Well, it it has the potential to become dry. Sorry. So it's it's dense vegetation, like super dense. Like you'd have to like breaststroke through it. You know, it's so thick from the ground level to two metres. It's just one thick wedge of biomass across the whole landscape. So you get a couple of dry summers that becomes bone dry. And then you've just, you've just living, your whole landscape's covered in a tinderbox. So it's coming again. Like everyone knows and everyone's preparing, you know, to, I mean, preparing not in like a weird prepper way, you know, not like a, oh, don't worry, build the bunker, come on, it's coming. But just, uh, you know, making sure you've got some form of comms, you've got some sort of water security, you've got the appropriate clothing to be able to be in a fire landscape. You know, you've got thick boots, you've got heavy drill cotton clothing, yep. you know, because I think a lot of people like oh, shoes melt. Yeah, you right. know, if you're out there on an ember-laden landscape, you know, you, you like if you're wearing a pair of Vivos, <laughs> you know, it's your stuff. I like to go barefoot. It's good <laughs> yeah, for my exactly. feet. Yeah, exactly. It's fire walking. <laughs> so, you know, because I, I like barefoot. I like I, wear, I spend a lot of time barefoot. I wear thin, you know, zero-drop shoes. But I have got a good pair of heavy boots for when, it, for when that situation arises again. Yeah. Because you know, those other boots, they're totally useless. What about the um, – talk to me about the the – the Indigenous Australian land management. So, mm. you know, there, there's there's a lot of great history that yes. First Nations people have um, with uh, managing the land. Yes. And this was something that a lot of people were like, oh, we need to, you know, we need to like seek their wisdom and, and bring back this management of the land so it doesn't happen again. Where does all that stand? Is there, has there been any consultation? Yeah. Um, talk to me about that. Well, I'm more, like I'm very, you know, always very hesitant to speak you know, on cultural knowledge being a white Australian. So, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to appropriate anything here. I'm not trying to speak like that's my area of expertise. But there certainly has been engagement from um, the Ewan people, where we are, down south, and an attempt or, or, or the fostering of that relationship that, you know, wasn't really there before. Uh, you know, the, the, sorry, the cultural knowledge from, from the Ewan mob were there, but maybe that ingrained relationship with the RFS and National Parks and Wildlife, uh, you know, MP, the National Parks are kind of our modern landscape managers. But, you know, that, that it's a totally different form of landscape management to, to Indigenous landscape management, where, you know, National Parks is about locking it up and keeping it, you know, wild uh, and managing feral animals, managing invasive weeds, managing, you know, human interaction with that park and space. Whereas I think, you know, an Indigenous landscape management is a lot more human-centric. You're in that entire landscape and it's not – the idea of wild doesn't really exist in the same way. It's because there's nowhere – it's true – you know, there there are obviously degrees of place with different significance. But, you know, people are a part of the landscape and influence it. Perhaps one of the challenges is, and again, there's people much better qualified to speak to this um, than I am from both a scientific and cultural perspective, is that that the landscape of Australia has changed significantly 
in the last 200 years post-colonisation. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the landscape management practices enacted by Indigenous people pre-colonisation, it's not necessarily as simple as just dragging those forward 200 years and remanaging the landscape like that because there's been significant degradation of our landscapes, uh, you know, whether it's through grazing or agriculture or fire damage or any of the number of, you know, or just the change in climate, the drying of the Australian continent. Yep. Um, and so I think one of the interesting things that I've kind of heard have come out is not – it's actually not even about the burning, the cultural management. This one, this, this method, this is um, Uncle Max from the Ewan crew down there, is that it's actually about re, um, looking at ways of rehydrating gullies and keeping water in those water courses uh, out in the wilder areas, and that ties in with the work of Peter Peter Andrews and natural sequence farming, which is a you know another kind of totally separate conversation. But keeping that because what Uncle Max said was that during those fires, because these gullies were dry when traditionally they'd be wet, or if at least not like wet as in flowing, they would have supported more high moisture vegetation around them. Yep. Whereas they were totally dry, so usually they would act as a a kind of a, a, a slow, like a speed hump or a, a stop even for yep. fires moving across the landscape that hit these wetter gullies and patches, slow, stop, whatever. Whereas when they're really bone dry, they actually act as shoots because uh-huh. the, the vegetation's quite clear around it so they can become these like air tunnels and the hot air hits these dry gullies and just tears up. Holy shit. Like a... Like a fire tornado up that and it actually amplifies the fire so my understanding of some of the work that's happening in the south coast is trying to slow the movement of water down across the landscape right on to just trying to keep that moisture in the landscape for for as long as possible so i mean it's I, i think it's amazing that that conversation is on the table you know that we are respecting that knowledge of of traditional custodians first nations people and their intimate and deep understanding of the functioning of the Australian landscape and actually going, wow, these guys, they, they actually know some stuff. <laughs> actually, they know a lot. Oh, we should maybe, maybe, maybe we should be taking some cues from them as to how to manage the landscape. So, I mean, it's, I guess that's the, again, kind of going back to that notion of, you know, community galvanisation is that, that in the face of that disaster, we realise that oh, we've kind of all got to work on this. You know, if anyone's got anything to bring to the table, it's all, it's all beneficial. Yeah. Um, going back to what you said earlier about uh, the, the enemy that people can see versus the enemy, the invisible enemy, mm. and the difference in sort of the, 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 the dynamic between folks. Yes. Uh, I'm guessing you're familiar with Sebastian Junger. Yeah, oh, he's, he's, no. a, he's an author. He's been on – you can hear him on Joe Rogan podcast, okay. which is, which, you know, not got a huge a five fan hour of Rogan drive. these days, but, yeah. I, but, oh, I, but the ones with Sebastian Junger are excellent. Okay, cool. But he wrote a book called Tribe. All right. uh, on homecoming and belonging mm. is the, the subtitle. But he, he talks about how um, he spent a lot of time, he spent time in uh, Afghanistan with a military platoon on the side of a mountain in shit conditions, being bombarded for fucking like two years, you know, losing men, not having food, like horrible conditions. Mm. Got back to the States, you know, the soldiers that survived, they all got back. He caught up with them in the years following. And he found that all of the soldiers 
kind of all expressed some desire to just be back there on that mountainside. Wow, because and of because of that solidarity. Well, yeah, the that kinship was, they had. Exactly. Wow. And, that, and he and so that was sort of the premise for the book is how uh, when there is an imminent threat to your existence, mm-hmm. it, it forces us to band together. Yes. And that is when people have the fondest memories of this human experience. Mm. And you know, and then he looked into different um, experiences during World War One, World War Two, where people have experienced the same thing. It was like. You know, London was being bombed. Everyone was stuck underground in the subway stations and they fucking loved it. Yes. And it was like looking back on it, people were like, oh, they were the best times. Um, f- fascinating notion, right? That, Indeed. That, that having some kind of threat can bring you closer to the people around you. Uh, to think about the inverse of that, which is a lack of threat takes you further away from that, like breaks those connections. Yeah, oh, and that invisible nature of it where where it's uncertain where the instead of being drawn to someone in your community, they represent a potential danger, like a, but an, an invisible one. It's like, okay, well, we're all in this pandemic. We all have been in this pandemic for the last 18 months, two years, but the threat can come in the form of my family. The threat can come in, it's the virus, whatever. Those German kids. Yeah, <laughs> snot-nosed little... Rats, they're the ones that will probably uh, – it won't worry them in the slightest. But then, you know, and so instead of it being like bringing people together, it's actually – it's all and, you know, it's been enforced and recommended through health orders of distancing, of, you know, kind of pushing yes. uh, pushing away instead of, you know, there's, there is a notion of solidarity. I know I've got, you know, a lot of friends uh, and family in Melbourne that, that there was a real sense of we're in this together. You know, obviously that kind of ground on a bit towards – 250 whatever days of lockdown which is just an amazing feat of endurance psychologically for so many people but they're certainly in the kind of early and mid stages of that definitely the big lockdown they had last year which was about now last year there was a real sense of like we're doing this we're a city we're acting collectively and we're doing this together to beat it uh but then yeah i mean i've seen it you know, in, in my own community it's pretty you know we've only got a small town of 2,000 people and there can be it can be really um, people can get really scared of the of the other, you know, because it rep- represents uncertainty and it represents that potential avenue for the threat to get you. Yeah. So do you think that's what it is that it's like you could be carrying the yeah. virus? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Especially as we open up to tourism, because you know I, li- I live in a tourist location, right? So six weeks of summer or six week period after Christmas is, you know, pandemonium down there with people visiting. It's amazing. Can't wait to get down yeah, there. Get down Fuck there. Please come on. Get down yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Jet skis. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's always the jet skis. It's always the jet skis. I swear some jet ski clubs holiday there. I've like, I've been in the, I've been in the surf at this like beautiful little national park beach, totally by myself, dolphins, sunrise, sunset, you know, beautiful golden water. And then had like a club of like 30 jet skiers rock up <laughs> off the point. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, go on and the, the, the lingering smell of two strike hangs in my nostrils. That's another story. But yeah, I, I think that, that, that it has driven a real wedge between people, you know, that's, uh, that, that, that when the threat comes in the form of people is really dangerous. You know, and, and it's not their behaviours or their actions necessarily. It's purely the fact they could be a vessel for this, you know, essentially invisible threat of a virus. Whereas when it's something like a fire uh, or in the case of maybe a war, it's really distinct what yeah. it is. You know, you're going to get shot if you put your head up. That's where the enemy is camped. They're going to bomb you. That's their plane. Take shelter or here comes the fire. Like, you know, you don't want to just be hanging out sunbaking when that thing rolls over. You know, you want to be taking action and you want to make sure your neighbours are taking action. But yeah, I just I found that, that that idea of lockdown, of isolation, of socially distancing, and I mean, you know, that's 
I'm not going to wade into that conversation about, you know, where that's at or whether it was appropriate. Let history be the judge of that. Uh, but it certainly has kind of driven somewhat of a wedge between people. And I think that now as we emerge from the pandemic uh, or what feels like an emergence from the pandemic, that, that people are beginning to relate, remember how to relate to one another, remembering how to be functioning members of a community, remembering how to be kind to other people and patient and, and how to coexist in, in, in space with other people, which is it's quite beautiful, actually. I'm really kind of enjoying this, this stage of people emerging from their, you know, their isolations and their, and their separations and, and seeing that, you know, coming back together. So I've, I, I kind of feel like this is a really interesting time in the pandemic to see... I guess in particular for like young, like really young people, like, you know, kind of teenagers, like are they, are they going to just bounce back to be like the, the roaring 20s generation? Because they, you know, they, they had all these big events in their lives, cancelled, delayed, lockdown, minimum attendance, whatever. And now once, you know, we go post-pandemic, they're going to be like, I'm making up for all this missed time. Like we're going wild. You're never going to lock us down again. Woohoo! We're partying. It's true. Yeah, the club scene's going to take it to yeah, a new level this surely, summer. Surely, <laughs> I reckon. It's going to be a massive summer. And I mean, again, I feel like as well that people are out there, while international travel is on the table now, I mean, it's still quite financially inaccessible for a lot of people. It's, like, it's back, but it's not back in the form of cheap international air travel. Yeah. Like it's, it's technically there, but still inaccessible. I guess what I'm really enjoying is seeing that people are discovering and appreciating their backyard. Yeah. That regional Australian tourism. And I mean, that was, that was to the credit of, of, of the urbanites in Australia. The, all those kind of social campaigns that kicked off to get people down to the country post bushfires, like spend with them, empty eskies. That was, that was, that was a great campaign. Amazing. It was literally life-changing for people with businesses that had lost all their summer trade. That's where they do 95% of their yearly earning in that kind of six weeks to eight weeks of, you know, Christmas to Easter, gone. But then these campaigns and people were spending up. It was beautiful. And then pandemic, bang, it's all gone. Yeah. And then they're like, oh. And then uh, it was like, you're the enemy. Like, yeah. you oh, yeah, no, yeah. city Out dwellers towners. are infected. Yeah. Well, where are you from? Where are you from, mate? Where are you from? <laughs> Haven't seen you here before, mate. Oh, you're down from Sydney. What are you doing here, mate? <laughs> <laughs> so there, there was a bit of that, you know, and they're like people, you know, because some people live in town, they've got Victorian plates, you know, but people, they were getting abused because like people just see the plate and they're like, I'll, I'll live here, man. Oh, I, just, I just haven't changed my license plate over yet, whatever. But like, we live here. Or people like writing wax on their cars at the beach <laughs> and stuff like that, you know, locals only type stuff. But, you know, so it's, I, I feel like hopefully those stages are somewhat behind us yep. and that now that we can re-embrace and recalculate and figure out how to be a community and a society together again. I mean, it's, it's complex. There's going to be some really amazing PhDs written on this, I reckon, from the academic community of the, you know, this will be, there'll be books, there'll be PhDs, there's already all of that. But to see how history digests this chapter will be really interesting, I reckon. Yeah, I agree. Mate, tell me about your training over the time. Oh. You were you were up here this morning training with JT doing some jits. Getting towels. <laughs> How were you, uh, were you training? Were you able to train over the last like nine months? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys were able. Were you, were you locked down in Bermagui? Uh we we had I think it was eight weeks. Okay, eight weeks of fucking cake. Yeah, soft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> eight weeks. <laughs> uh, and I mean, so I mean, we couldn't. I couldn't physically do jiu-jitsu there. Uh, you know, because we. We train at the surf club and the surf club's obviously, you know, by the books. So we just put that on a hold. But, I mean, we were so fortunate, you know, because, you know, the, the whole stick in your LGA thing. So our, our shire goes from Bermagui to the Victorian border, which is about a two-hour drive. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. That's your LGA. That's my LGA. Amazing. And then from the coast, it's probably another hour drive inland to get to the border of it. So, and that's heaps of national parks, heaps of beaches. So, like, for us, it really, it wasn't difficult at all. Like, there's no yep. way I could pretend that it was. Um, and then we kind of just went into this weird, like, holding pattern of being a small town. So, and I mean, I had the kids with me. They were both out of care because, you know, that's happening, homeschooling, all that. I mean, my oldest is in year one currently and the youngest is in uh, childcare, preschool. And we just, we just went on adventures, you know. I didn't push any homeschooling for them. Year one, you know, what are we, we going to make him do, you know? Colouring like, in Colouring in and stuff. I'm <laughs> like, no, so we, we just spent a lot of time out and I just kind of just would try to get that, maybe not like workout kind of notion, but more so just like outside using your body, moving, climbing, walking, swimming, doing all those, you know, that kind of high movement stuff. Um, and then I was, I, I guess I kind of looked for something like quite simple uh, in my training and, you know, I kind of foolish, I, I don't know, foolishly, naively maybe, I went online and, and I've got a, like a squat rack and a barbell at home that I haven't been using for a while and so I just I started a bit of starting strength nice. on there. Ripple so time. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And, and I mean, I'd never really done a dedicated barbell program. Like I think I, I got it a few years back just to kind of like do some random crossfit type stuff, you know, <laughs> like throwing things around every now and then, but absolutely no structure, no programming. Is this where the thickness has come from? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. We walked into the cafe and I was like, Whoa, jeez, look at Yeah. So it's, um, and I mean, that. I guess for me, I feel like I've got a kind of body type that resonates with, with barbell lifting. Um, like I've kind of got the frame to be able to put on some, some mass. Uh, not that I've ever really gone down that path. And uh, it just, it worked. It just made sense, you know. And for me, for someone with no, you know, I'm not a PT. I don't really have any kind of deep understanding of that. Like just to be able to... Most like, PTs don't. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not alone there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, really simple movements, really simple programming, just keep stacking it on, away you go, you know, and it, and it worked. And I was like, oh, okay. And it was the kind of thing where I could put the kids to bed and I didn't really have to think about it, you know. And it's like when you're doing that, like, kind of lifting heavy routine, like, it, you, you don't, like you don't have to think too much, you know what I mean? Like, and it's not like... No, not, it's simple. It's simple. And you're not like... It's physically exerting, but you're having long rest periods, you know, like it's, you're not kind of doing like a hardcore, you know, conditioning workout. It's kind of like you just get under the bar, do your reps, have a big rest, do some more reps, switch the lift and away you go. So, I mean, that, that just kind of worked, I felt for me because, you know, like I hate doing stuff after the kids go to bed. You know, there's parents out there like, oh, my kids go to bed. That's when I do two hours of solid work, you know, and I'm like, I'm cooked. It's when, time to lie on the couch. Oh, man, exactly. Like, my, you know, if I don't fall asleep in their room with them, I'm like, I'm moments away from bed myself. So to be able to just kind of go, okay, this is real easy. I can kind of do it on autopilot while still making some sort of progression. I mean, it's not ideal to be doing something in that kind of mindset. I do like to have a little bit more consciousness around what I do on my movement, but it just worked. But then it got boring. Well, you would do that like <laughs> there in the house, you're doing the lifting, like it's just, it's just at there. the same time. Yeah, yep. exactly. You know, they're kind of coming out, they're like, you know, hanging off the barbell, off the squat rack and, you yep. know, if I was just doing it through the day or trying to like move little plates around, which is quite cute. Luckily, no one lost any toes <laughs> uh, and it was good. But I think towards, like I, I probably didn't get, I probably got through about eight weeks of it and just went, oh man, just these same lifts again and just got a bit got a bit sick of it. So I've actually I've actually just come across to, you know, gratuitous plug here, uh, Bulletproof. Oh. For BJJ. Have you just? Yes. Oh, my guy. Because, you know, like as I, you know, we, we, I also do two days a week of jujitsu down in Bermagui. Uh, and, you know, probably just to, before we go on to that, you know, the Bulletproof kind of component of it to, 
you know, I, I did a bit of training when I was living in Melbourne. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of very lucky to just kind of stumble into Absolute. I was looking for a CBD location that did lunchtime classes. Right on. And, you know, they've got that amazing location in there with like 50 killers on the mat in the Which city. For, for the uninitiated, Absolute MMA is like, they've got a few gyms in Melbourne, but yes. you're at the St Kilda gym? No, no, no. So wasn't it their like super JITS, you know, championship gym where Lockie and the, the, the kind of, you know, comp crew train. But that said- Still a bunch of killers. Tiago's Lockie's teacher. Ah, so you it's Tiago Stefanuti. Correct. Yep. And he would run those classes. And, you know, it's CBD. So it's where you would get all the, like, corporate warrior savages. They're yeah. like, I work in account. I'm a second-degree black belt, and I like to get my role on at lunchtime. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, you know, amazing. Kind of got – that's where I got indoctrined into the world of jiu-jitsu. I went, oh, this is, this is amazing. I love this. Sensational. Moved back to the, uh, to the regions, back to Bermagui, and there's nothing. I mean, there's no, there's no one like, which, uh, you know, I was talking to you, you about this earlier, Joey, that like, it was quite surprising, you know, cause it's such a popular sport. There's, you know, cities, there's countless gyms now, you know, there's like I, dozens and dozens of gyms. In I a find city. it hard to remember traveling to any town where you don't see some form something. of jiu-jitsu. Yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, you know? no, and, and, it, and it's often surprising. Like you're in some little town then it's like, oh, you know, huh. Marcelo so-and-so. Yeah. And you're like, holy shit. Yeah, of course they got a gym here. Yeah. But yep, you've, well, got, you've actually got nothing. Nothing. So there's to drive one hour north, there's a purple belt that runs something very similar to us, just like a low low fire. And then other than that's Canberra, three hours. Mm. So, and I mean, you know, there's I know there would be a certain mindset out there. would be like, well, if you're just dedicated, why don't you just drive to Canberra up and back, <laughs> six hours return twice a week. Like if you really want it, you'd be doing that. That's and what I know, did in the 1980s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, when I didn't have kids and I was 20 years old, like it was amazing. <laughs> But that's totally off the cards for me. You know, I've got family, I've got kids, a career, blah, blah, blah. So when we got there, I'm like, well, geez, I, I love this jit stuff. Uh, I really want to keep going, uh, but there's nothing. And I knew a couple of guys in town were keen. They were keen to start doing it. So I said, look, well, we don't have, there's no belts. There's no black belt, no even any sort of senior belt, high belt. How about, how about I get some mats and I'll sort the insurance. I'll sort the, like, the, the, the club. The, you know, we do it at the Birmingham Surf Lifesaving Club and um, I'll sort the lesson content and you guys can just pay me like, you know, 15 bucks. And it just covers venue hire insurance. Like it's pretty much not for profit. And uh, on the first night, two dudes straight up and it was myself and we just had a great time. And then those two same guys have been training nonstop for that, for that year. So I actually started just after our last podcast. Oh, wow. So it wasn't, you know, fires and the first round of the pandemic wasn't happening, but I kind of, it was... Late September, early October last year, it okay. kicked off. So we've just ticked over 12 months. And we started initially on Mondays, but now we do Mondays and Thursdays. Oh. At the Birmingham Surf Lifesaving Club. Seriously, it is, it's it's got to be one of the nicest dojos, gyms, mat spaces. You see the water? Oh, you see the water. Can you, can you can grab see a the beer mat. afterwards? You can grab – so so it's equal equidistant to the pub and the beach. Oh, man. And both of that's like within 50 metres type okay. thing. So it's, it's the surf club. So we usually get off the mats, have a swim, and then the, the Bermagui Beach Hotel's right there. And at this time of year, it's all like, it's all sunsetty. You oh, know, it's magic. Yeah, beautiful. Like we came off the mats the other night and it was like, there'd just been a storm. So there's like this beautiful golden cumulonimbus cloud off the coast, enormous rainbow going into the water, baby seals swimming around the beach. <laughs> and we're just like, how good is this? Ah, oh, amazing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, you know, yap at me, you little, <laughs> you little mongrel. So, so we kind of get like six to 10 people on a, you know, twice a week. Girls. Mate, that's amazing. 16-year-olds up to 50-year-olds, you know, it's, and, and it's all been word of mouth. It's all just been people just kind of randomly show up. 
We've had like one black belt randomly show up from Canberra because cool. he just heard on the grapevine. He was like an unassuming, you know, as they always are, just kind of like a just a regular, you know, kind of Canberra public servant looking dude. He's like, oh, is this where we, you guys are doing jiu-jitsu? I'm like, yeah, come in, man. It's like snow gi and gave him the spiel like, I've got no qualifications, just so you know. Like I'm not trying to run some sort of McDojo business here, but we just kind of come work through some stuff and have a bit of fun. And he kind of put his backpack down and like, I'm sure he didn't plan it, but like as he put his backpack down, it was kind of half open and like the black belt just kind of like <laughs> rolled out a little bit. I was like, oh, what's that? What's that? <laughs> Are you sure? Do you want to run this class? Because I mean, like you're infinitely more qualified. And he's like, no, it's cool. Did he run the class? No, 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 no. But he, but he, what he let, you know, cause he was he just, just wanted like, to do a class. He just wanted to do a class. Yeah. But he didn't run the class. Cause I didn't think he wanted to be like, I don't, no, it's good. You do your thing, man. It's cool. But what he did do was spend a lot of time with people. Great. You know, so he'd kind of like rotate his rolling and he like just gave us so much knowledge. And he, he's a regular. I oh, mean, wow. like he's a regular visitor, I yeah. should say. So he's based in Canberra. They've got a caravan at Wallaga Lake and whenever he comes down, he just sends me a message and he's on the mats. That's beautiful. Oh, so good. It's amazing. So, you know, if anyone's listening, just shouting out, uh, if anyone's listening and they're down in, you know, heading south uh, on the coast and so on, look me up, Bermagui. Uh, I think Groundswell, Groundswell Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, it's got an official it's got a name. name. Yeah, you got an Instagram account? Uh, or something I, like I that? do. Yeah, I do. But it's like I'm so shit at <laughs> <laughs> Instagram. I mean, like I, you know, I, especially in the food space where I, where I've kind of traditionally been over the last eight or ten years, I'm no people, you know, that are, are masters. You know, they've like literally built their whole career on the back of their social media strength. Yeah. And when they do stuff, I'm like, and but I see the level of dedication that it takes to do. I'm like, I don't want that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. It's, it's nothing to envy. Yeah, if it's, that's the price you got to pay to be where you are, I'm I'm looking for a different career path. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, man. I people, you know, I get people come to me because you know I do a bit on Instagram, and people come to me and say, you got to get on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, and they're like, all you got to do, all you got to do is just post one video a day. That's just it. Posting, and it's Simple. like, do you know how much fucking work goes yeah. in? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you end up just living through your, your phone instead of like doing it, right? You're like, you're managing that account and then people are commenting, oh, I need to drive engagement. So I need to like, com if people comment in the first hour, I need to make sure I answer those, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. And you become a slave to the algorithm. That's right. Boo. No, not my fam. Uh, not, my, not my cup of tea. And I mean, we're, we're, I've kept it very distinctly kind of word of mouth down there so it's gonna be a fight club vibe um do you have you encountered any kind of frustration personally like because what i can imagine is that mm. it, what starts out as like a little you know a little community thing it's you wanting to share this thing that you're into with other people yeah now it sounds like it's transitioning to a, a, a business yeah and then before you know it it's like it's a business right and yeah. and with that comes extra responsibility and pressures yep do you experience any kind of friction with any of that? I think I've like had to learn that I've got to carve time additional to the mat time off for it, like prep time. Yeah. And I, like I can't just kind of go, they're the two or, you know, probably two hours an evening twice a week that I spend on this. Like there needs to be at least another kind of two hours each. So in total it's about eight hours a week. Yeah. So two hours of mat time twice a week and two hours prep in some form for each one of those hours just to get all you know because because i'm making i'm not making it up but i'm trying to absorb information through online you know like grapplers guide through bjj fanatics youtube to then pass on to you know the, the people that come to the club so to do that i mean i've got I, I don't have that knowledge inherently in me yeah you know what i mean and we kind of it's very democratic we discuss what we want to work on and then it's just i'm happy to put my hand up to be the one that go okay i'll come and absorb that information and i'll come back and share it with everyone but you, you know to consolidate that information it takes time 
You know, yeah. like you can't just watch like a five minute YouTube clip after you've set the mats up and everyone's kind of filing in and go, oh, I'm teaching that, you know. But, uh, and, and luckily I'm very upfront with everyone. Like as soon as they come in, I make sure people know very distinctly what's happening there. It's like, we're just pretty much a grappling club. You know, this isn't like, you know, I'm not some sort of like black belt with knowledge to share. I'm like, I'm facilitating people coming here to grapple and the cost basically covers insurance and venue hire, you know, and I pretty much do it off my own, you know, just so I can, so I can roll. So, so I can, so I can do it. Get some training in. Yeah. When are you coming down? When are you coming um, down, Joe? When did I say? What is it now? Like next couple of weeks. I Dude, think. I think I'm there at like 17th of November. Yeah. Awesome. Check, check this fucking calendar right now. Dude, I'm coming down next Friday. Yeah. Well, I'll be in town next Friday. Great. So you have class Tuesday and Thursday, right? Monday, Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday. So I'll be there Monday night. Awesome. Amazing. Not, not, not Monday this, week. Monday week. Sweet. Yeah. I'm, I'm there. Ah, oh, awesome. Yeah, that'd be sick. I hope you're there, Paul. Yeah, I'll be there. Don't <laughs> worry. Don't worry. I'll be there with bells on. Yeah, you're going to run cool. the class or are you just going to kind of like I put the want, pressure I'm happy on to me? run the class. Please do. I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. Please do. Cause <laughs> I just feel so, I'd be like, um, I'll just be looking over at you and going, oh God, don't judge me, Joey. Don't judge me. I'm just making this stuff up, mate. I'm sorry. Please. Um, but yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. And, and people are so open to it. They're a great bunch of people. They just, they want to learn. They want to roll. They, you know, they, it's all no gi because, you know, we kind of thought that if we did gi, it would just look ridiculous. Everyone's standing around in white belts, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think maybe down the track, I'm, I'm certainly kind of putting it as my 2022 goal to get a blue belt. All right. And we've teed up with a, um, a kind of a, a, a couple of black belts from a club in Sydney, oh, sorry, in Canberra. And, um, and I've kind of expressed that desire to them and, you know, helped me with this. Uh, and they kind of, you know, the guy that first dropped in is one of those black belts and his yep. kind of coach. And they're, um, you know, they're, they're keen on that. And I think because it feels like, like a lot of that Canberra scene started in a very similar situation, like in the old garage days. It's not a massive scene in Canberra yet. Still really good. A couple of great gyms there, Legion 13 and, uh, and Elements. And they all started, yeah, in a, in a garage, you know, watching old VHSs, Gracie Mags. Mate, that's how it started in Sydney too. Yeah. I think if you, um, yeah, I think if you go back like some of the, some of the pioneers like John Will, mm. who uh, started on the Northern Beaches, and maybe Peter Debean from, from Melbourne. But I, I, you know, there's stories of, and I don't know, you know, I don't know the history super well, but of those guys like going to Brazil, traveling yeah. to Brazil, spending months there to train to get their blue belt. And then coming back and like sharing the knowledge yeah. and, and being revered. It's like, holy shit, this guy's a blue belt. Yeah. You know? And then and then at a point there was the the three guys, the three Brazilian black belts who turned up, started the New South Wales Federation. Uh-huh. You know, corrupted the shit out of it. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but but all that culture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, that's another story. But it's amazing. Like uh, I, I initially I was quite hesitant to share what I was doing with some of those kind of senior black belts in case they were kind of like you've got no right to be doing that. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. Like that's, you're going to get, someone's going to get injured, you're going to get hurt, you're kind of watering down the art, but it was actually the opposite. I think a lot of, in particular like guys that might be like pushing kind of 45, 50 and like old school black belts, uh, they're like, yeah, solid. That's how we started going hard in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have a clue. We hurt each other all the time, but God, it was good. Oh, take <laughs> me back, take me back to the garage day. So I think they, a lot of those guys appreciate that, you know, you, you've got a choice. You can either say, oh, I'm going to wait for like a really senior or a black belt or someone to learn off or we're just going to do it. Yeah. We're just going to do it. We're going to like get information from wherever we can. We're going to affiliate with someone, hopefully somewhere down the track. And if we get a sticking point, then we, we try to seek that, you know, that external knowledge wherever it is. Well, now it's so available. 
It is. I mean, that's right. No one's starved for the knowledge, right? No. I mean, it is a different thing having someone there. Oh, totally. Versus learning online. But, Absolutely. But you can do it online. Yeah. Totally. And I mean, you can when you've got a good, dedicated group, you can you can kind of fumble your way through workshopping the finer points. Yeah. You know, like a, in particular because it's a partner based you know, sport, right? Like you're kind of grappling against someone. Like if a choke's not on, it's not on, you know? If you're not, if you're missing that, your partner will be like, yeah, nah, that's not there. That's something, something's got to give. Oh, uh, 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 that's it. Yeah, that's it. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a funny thing with Jits. I, I, like you said that, you know, you have no qualification and that no one's got any qualification. Nah. You know, you even, you go to a gym here and there's a black belt, like whatever, they, they might have their black belt certificate, mm. which comes when you pay your, you know, yearly fee to the International <laughs> Federation, <laughs> yeah. right? But you didn't, and, but, you know, and certain, uh, certain affiliations have their own curriculum. And yes. so they have their own standards and you must be able to show, you know, these standards to acquire the, the different belts. But for the majority of them, it's like, oh, my coach gave me a black belt or a brown yeah. belt because they thought I was at that level. I've been showing up. Yeah, there's there's no actual, like, you didn't pass a specific test. Yes. Um, so I think that it speaks to jiu-jitsu, yeah. right? That the, the nature of how it's unfolding for you is like, that's that's what it is. That's it, the grassroots. Yeah. Grassroots jiu-jitsu. Man, I'm excited to come up. Yeah, we can't wait. Come yeah. down. And seriously, if anyone's listening and they you know they want a road trip, Bermagui, five hours south of Sydney, about three hours southeast of Canberra, come down, hit me up. We'd love love guests. If you're a senior belt, come run a class. You can take the proceeds, whatever. It's, uh, that's amazing. Beautiful. Yeah, we're happy. Like, uh, you know, uh, if, if someone moved to that town, to my town, and they were like a senior belt and they wanted to start training. I'd be like, sweet, take the mats. I'm happy. Like, I'll learn off you. I don't, this isn't a competition now. If I've <laughs> got to fight me. Yeah, exactly. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go do some dojo storming at the Bermagui Surf Club. Uh, you know, and that, that would be amazing. Like, so if, if there's a black belt out there that's looking for a regional, you know, tree or sea change, uh, come, on, come on down. I'm kind of like even tossing up the idea of like you know, mat surfers. Is that, have you ever heard of that? It's like a, it's kind of like couch surfing, but for the jujitsu community. It's a thing? Or it's you, a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Oh, okay. I think it's a website where they're like traveling jujiteros, you know, kind yeah. of offer positions or offer skills. I've seen jujitsu nomads. Like there's a yeah. few groups it, around yeah, like sweet. that. Sweet, exactly. Because, you know, we, we live on a coastal town. I know a lot of small business owners in town in the hospitality venue. If you, if you want to come down, live on the coast, we can get your job at the pub. You can teach jiu-jitsu three nights a week. Keep the proceeds for that as well if you want. I've already got the mats. I've got the insurance. I've got the venue. If you want to come do it, hit me up. That's I'd love that. Cool. That is a huge offer. That's a huge offer. And I mean, you'd be living in the spare bedroom at our house, but that's cool. It's worse places. It's wor- there's much worse places. We're in, a, we're in a top spot. You going to come stay with us? Um, or are you going to drive to Birmingham and then head back? No, I think I'd probably come stay the night. You're welcome I to. I think that'd be much easier, right? Yeah, totally. You could hang out a yeah, bit more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think of... We've got to sort out who we're going to have with us, kids-wise, and dogs. Yeah. I think dogs we're leaving here. Okay. Because we can't take them. We've got a dog friendly out. Have you? Yep. Yeah, if you'll have us. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. You're welcome. Yeah, no. Meet your kids, be... meet the wife. Yeah, awesome. Mad. <laughs> meet, the, meet the crew. Meet the, the groundswell jujitsu crew. <laughs> groundswell. The, south, the southern savages. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been amazing. And it's, you know, and, and people, they love it. You know, they're so like, I'm so apologetic about my lack of expertise, right? Like I'm really upfront about it. I'm like, look, I'm making this up guys, you know, just so you know, I'm not, not an expert, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of every session, people are just like, thanks so much for putting this on. Thanks so much for organizing this and just rolling the mats out and for doing all this because we love it. It's a highlight of our week. We look forward to it, you know? Wow. 
It's great. Do you, do they come to you because they've heard of jujitsu or they've had some exposure to it and they want to train it? Yes. Or are they like, oh, I heard you're doing a thing here. It sounds like fun. I want to get fit. So most most people that come for the sounds like fun, just want to get fit, come for once and don't come back. Right. <laughs> but but most of most of my crew have uh, have had some exposure to training somewhere else yeah and they were in the same boat as me they like they like they did a bit they trained for six months a year when they were living somewhere for work they come back to Bermagui and they're like oh well it looks like that's done now that chapter's done and they're just happy just to get on the mats and roll yeah you know and we've had to have a few people come through that it's been a totally new experience for them but i mean it's, it really is not everyone's cup of tea no <laughs> you know it's, it's like it's pretty intimate it's pretty, pretty yeah on. it's pretty full on you know like when day day one when you're rolling sparring day one like that really takes a lot of people aback yeah you know and we we try to do it you know properly so we get people warmed up properly you know explain to them you know it's not fight or flight please don't go in there and try to you know in your first role try to like act like if you get subbed you're going to die because it's not the case you'll probably end up hurting yourself and where we've been lucky uh you know we we 12 months 12 months on the mats you know two nights a week for half of that no major injuries. That's great. Which is awesome. You know, yeah. which is kind of like, you know, in my position of responsibility for it, the last thing, you know, because if I was doing it and people just getting injured left, right and centre, I'd be questioning about what I was doing. You know, like I'm doing something wrong here and, uh, you know, I've only got a kind of small crew and if everyone's getting injured, <laughs> yeah, it's right. just going to be me doing mobility work on the mats on a Monday <laughs> and Monday and Thursday. Shadow grappling Yeah, yourself. exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. That was beautiful, that John Denneher. Was that the like the BJJ Fanatics, the solo, the solo thing he released at the beginning of the global I pandemic? Never looked it, was at like, it. it was like free down. I was like, oh free Denneher. I'll download that. And it was there was a little bit of him kind of shadow, shadow grappling. Holy shit. In there. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he, I'm guessing he moves pretty well. He moves amazing. He's a for, bit of a rickety guy. Yeah, for someone who's had like hip recos and and that whole shtick, he's yeah, and still doing full like straight leg toes to bar. You know, strength work. Really? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pretty much the only. I'm like, I'm probably butchering this, but remember that was the only kind of supplementary movement that he recommended for jujitsu. Yeah, like strength movement. He's just like just toast a bar. Wow. He's like, that's it. Other everything else should be movement pattern. Ah, how interesting. Yeah, I did hear a um an interview with him. Someone asked him what they what he thought was the best strength and conditioning. For jiu-jitsu? jiu-jitsu obviously not heard of bulletproof yeah but he um but <laughs> yeah. he, he had he i mean he's, he's a fucking smart guy he said uh he said whatever he said i, I don't scientifically i don't know what yes. the best because i've oh. seen people that have done a lot of barbell work and yes. it's worked well for them i've yes. seen people that have done um you know calisthenics and it's worked well so he's like whatever works for you same people have done a lot of juice it works well <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. might have trained a couple of them who could yeah, say it doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> oh mate that's fucking cool Tell me, um, you've released a book. I have. It yeah, what's well, coming it's out? It's not available to the public yet. No, not yet. Not yet. But I, I've got a copy for you. Uh, and I've got a, I forgot to mention, JT, I've got a copy for you too in the back around there. I didn't bring oysters and, uh, and cream this time. <laughs> uh, but I've got a book for you. It's called Homegrown. Uh, it's, uh, it's looking at uh, the cottage industry of growing marijuana in your backyard. <laughs> right. An important timing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe in another 10 years, I'll, like, I'll do Homegrown V2 uh, and that'll be the case. Uh, but this one, you know, it's, it's just encouraging people to grow a bit of food. You know, and I, I guess what I found where I've kind of – 
I, I guess discovered my niche is that uh, accessible gardening information. Because I, as someone who's quite passionate about gardening, growing food, I mean, I can, I can pretty much pick up any gardening book and get something from it, no matter how technical it is, even if it's like a full-on, you know, biology book, I can still get something out of that that I can apply in my daily life. But I just found that like a lot of books were written by gardeners for gardeners. Like there was a lot of assumed knowledge in there that like it, that, that there was no there was no stepping stone to propagate that. the seeds. Yeah, exactly. Like what you know how mean? to do that. You know, yeah. it's, it's easy. Just get, just just grow from seed. So I guess what I hope to do is is to kind of give people because most people don't, aren't coming from a gardening culture anymore. There's a there's a huge explosion of interest in it, and, and I think you know a lot of that has been driven by exposure for the first time of people to food insecurity. Maybe, yep. maybe not in like a, like a really dangerous, you know, or, or threatening level of food insecurity. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 37. Uh, the pandemic was the first time I've ever gone to the supermarket and seen an empty shelf. Right. And, you know, so that's kind of shattered that illusion of the supermarket just always being there, always being full, always having food available. And that's the kind of assumption that our modern society is built on is that, yeah, you can, you can niche down in whatever job you do. Because the supermarket will have your food covered. Yeah, you know that that survival component of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that's covered for you. You, you just you know all you have to do is put it in your mouth. You don't have to grow it, tend it, do any of that. So I think a lot of people on the back of that, coupled with the fact that they were in their home space, they had more time, uh, they were looking for, you know, for for ways to be outside constructively uh, that gardening has had a real explosion, and in particular an interest in in kind of creating some form of food for yourself. You guys do an amazing job here at JB's. The garden looks sensational. So I was like, oh. I can claim very little responsibility for yes. that, by the way. Dylan, who is, I've got to give him some props in the office Yes, right Dylan. Now. He's taken that, that torch. He's wearing that hat since T left and he's fucking owning it. It's pumping, Dylan. That's looking sensational down there. So, and I mean, what, I mean, as someone visiting a gym, what a beautiful thing to see as you walk in because it's, what I love about gardens is it's, it's like these pockets of, biodiversity and life and living you know it's like it's especially when you're in a built environment like here at botany i mean looking out the window here there's still you know there's 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 still native vegetation you've got gum trees and casuarinas and but to have that beautiful tended garden because we're in kind of a light industrial area a lot of it's really kind of low maintenance yuckery native yeah but to see something something yeah exactly something that's just going to fill up that spot you know until we decide to concrete over it for another car park but to see this is it's it's sensational, and surely you must get that feedback from from the punters here that you know, or from the members here in the gym that they love that, right? They love it. Has anyone come in going, yeah, you know, what are you what are you doing? What are you wasting your time with that garden for? <laughs> bloody, couldn't you put some chin up bars or something there instead? Come on, what is it? get it out. It's, it's, it's a bloody eyesore. So I'm sure that no one's ever reacted like that to it because it, it makes it welcoming. It's home. It's life. It's there's you know, gardening is culture. You know, and it's in its own way you're you're, you're fostering and tending culture. You know, it's of, of microbiology, of plants, of macrobiology, of, of people and, and interaction with the built environment. It's, it's a really beautiful and amazing thing. And, like, I'm kind of glad to have gardening uh, as well as jujitsu because, I, I, like, I don't know that I'm going to be grappling till I'm 95, <laughs> you know. Why not? Maybe, well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe go full helio and, like, you know, <laughs> and actually be able to do it. Uh, but I, I certainly hope to be doing it for a very long time and I certainly hope Bulletproof for BJJ, shout out, uh, can give me the, the, the skills and the, the kind of physical... Uh, it gets to 100. ...robustness. Yeah, exactly, to, to be able to do it for as long as I want to do it. But the beautiful... You know, thing about gardening is that it's something that you know you, you you never you're just always scratching the surface, 
it's like it's like a what's the word I'm looking for? It's fractal. Your understanding of it, like you you see the initial pattern, and you go, oh, there's a little bit more detail, and you realize there's a pattern within that, and then a pattern within that, and like you can just constantly deepen your understanding throughout the course of your entire life. And I mean, I get I'm very fortunate that I get to do a lot of work uh, with various kind of gardening groups and organisations around Australia, and you'd be hard pressed to find a more active and energetic group of octogenarians than your local gardening club like they smash it you know like uh, like 80 year olds 80 year olds yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so like i mean like you know i get invites to speak at that kind of stuff all the time they're like oh we're having their thursday catch-up uh first thursday of the month we'd love you to come and talk (laughs) and i'm saying yeah sure i'd love to come on uh and then you know you go in there and they're like they've got the sandra sword the urns on they're like swapping cuttings and seedlings they're all mobile and active and they're eyes are sparkling and it's like it's gardening that's keeping him young because it's you know i think the worst thing especially you know once you get into your later years say post-retirement especially if you've come from a physical base physical job is to stop you know just all of a sudden go oh thank god that's done the hard the hard yards are done boom sit down on the couch watch tv drink a few beers because then everything seizes up and then bang you you know you're kind of on that slippery slope of decreasing mobility uh, and decreasing health markers but you know gardening it's not backbreaking it doesn't have to be can be but if you're smart about it, it doesn't have to be and it's kind of got all those beautiful subtle human movements you know you're kind of squatting to weed you're lifting things up you're lifting buckets you're doing farmers carries you know through the garden and you're out you're moving you're kind of getting sunshine you're getting physical nourishment through movement and you know if you're growing food uh, you're also getting that like high nutrient density food there, I think there's a really beautiful intersection between kind of human health in that movement space and uh, and gardening because it's I mean it, when we're you know we're we're a hunter gatherer design but we don't live in a hunter gatherer world anymore but to be able to tend a garden enables you to bring some of that you know that that interaction with the natural world into your life without you know having to whittle your own spear and go out and try risk, to risk your life exactly you know. Yeah, that's, that's so inaccessible for most people as well, you know. So be like, because I know there's crew out there that make their own, you know, traditional bows and hunt barefoot in, you know, hunt for buffalo in northern Australia. They do that. There's guys out there that do that. They're fascinating. I love them. But for most people, that's just never going to happen, you know. Yeah. But gardening is something you can do. And 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 I think what the experience for me with River Cottage, um, which was a program that I guess kind of shot me into the spotlight that I did for Foxtel and then SBS, was that that it was on a farm, right? Like a twenty acre small holding. Uh, and for a lot of people, that was hugely aspirational. I was like, wow, oh man, that's amazing. I'd love to do that one day when the kids are older, when maybe when, you know, we're in a bit more of a stable position with work, we're going to move out to the country and do that. Well, what are you doing now? You know, it's like if you think that like when you get to retirement age, going and running a 20-acre rural property is going to be fun or relaxing, it's going to be hard work. It's a job, you know, like you're fencing, you're mowing and slashing, livestock maintenance, doing all the bits, like not to say you can't do it, but it's not, you know, it's not like that bucolic country lifestyle magazine sense. Like it's, it's work. Uh, but what you can do now is like, if you, even if you're not, if you're growing herbs, it's as simple as that. That's why I always try to get people to start, you know, it's like, Oh, I'd love to have a garden one day. I'm like, just get a pot of time. That's all you need. Fuck. Can't kill time. Can't kill time. Thyme or rosemary. Just like a little terracotta pot of each of those. You can go to your local garden center, Bunnings, whatever, spend 20 bucks, get some potting mix, get a thyme seedling and just, just keep it near your back door. Even if you don't use it in your cooking, just keep it alive. There's your mission. Just keep it alive. And it's so robust. And as long as you're kind of seeing it on a daily basis, keep the watering can next to it. 
huh. and with you know with like a ten liter watering can because you're only going to need a little splash on that every couple of days. So you don't have to fill it up. You don't have to go look for it. You don't have to get the hose. But if you just see it looking a little bit kind of saggy and wilty, like it's a little bit dehydrated, just give it a drink. Simple as that. And if you can keep that alive, keep chipping away, and hopefully that'll help get the the green, the gardening bug to bite. And help people realise that plants want to live, you know. And it's like you, if you just skill yourself with some of that that observation knowledge about how to look at something and determine whether or not it's in good health, that's that's a really big tool to, to helping you down the, the gardening, the garden path, the garden path of gardening. But I think the biggest mistake people can make is to go full Jamie Jury, backyard blitz, to be like, okay, I've got a 200 square metre backyard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hire a mini digger and I'm going to dig the whole thing up into like veggie beds and I'm going to go to Bunnings and I'm going to get all these raised beds and I'm going to get 10 cubic metres of garden soil and I'm going to put it all in. And you do one week into that, you're totally fried, nothing's finished, nothing's growing and then you're just like, oh man, this gardening, this gardening racket's too hard. Like the best thing about, for me, or the approach to gardening is a little a lot. Don't like every now and then you do those big working bee days where you're like, you might have to dig some new beds or go do, go hard on some weeding after you've been away for a little bit. But really I just, I try to spend at a bare minimum five minutes a day in the garden. Simple as that every day. I've got a little like, you know, like a little app on my phone with a little tick box to remind me, you know, like one of those kind of like habit, even though I do all the time, it's just just good at the end of the day for me amongst all the other stuff that I do. Cause sometimes, you know, when you're writing a book about gardening, you write, you're doing more writing than you are gardening, yeah. which is the irony of it. You know, you're like, instead of actually going and doing the things that you're writing about, you're sitting at a desk writing about it and you're in the zone, you're typing out, you're going, oh yeah, I'm going to hit that, you know, I'm going to hit that, you know, deadline for today. And then you go, oh, geez, I didn't, I didn't actually do anything. I didn't spend any time in my garden. I didn't have a look at any plants. I didn't water anything. So I always just like to have a little reminder to go five minutes a day. That's a cool thing. Yeah, that's enough really. Do you think that the... The gardening thing has traditionally been kind of uncool for people. Like oh, yeah. Because it, totally. what I'm guessing is like there's not a lot of – like there's permaculture and stuff out there. Yes. It's like if you're really into it. Really into it. seems to be some cool books and you yeah, can really yeah, sink yeah. your teeth into it. But if you're just like, oh, yeah, I, I buy some herbs when I'm at the supermarket. Yeah. I bought some. They die. But I do want to do something. There's no one speaking to young people about yeah. that. And I mean, like, I've got an incredibly deep amount of respect for the permaculture community and what they do. But sometimes, like, the, the kind of big proponents of it can be really alienating. Like if, you're, like, if you're not knitting your own vest out of alpaca wool that, you know, you raise the alpaca and then you then spun it yourself and then knitted it yourself, you're just part of the capitalist machine, <laughs> you know, and you're the enemy, you know, which, you know, like, it can be a little bit combative sometimes language, like a little bit like we're over here, we're the dedicated few and everyone else is just part of the problem. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, from some of those real hardcore permies out there. Whereas realistically for the bulk of the population, you have one look at that and go, oh, fuck that, <laughs> you know, righto. I'm like, I'm just going to keep living my life. I'm doing my best here, but I'm never going to wear my own hand spun alpaca vest. Yeah, okay? maybe one day. Maybe one day, <laughs> yeah. maybe, we'll see. Depends what colour I can dye. But I think, I think, yeah, really like kind of bringing it into the fore I think is, um, you know, especially of younger kind of cultures or, you know, younger demographics is is a really critical exchange because, and that's something that, you know, I'm kind of a co-founder of a thing called Grow It Local. And we've, it was from the, you know, the the other two, we're a four four group founding group. Uh, The other two guys created Garage Sale Trail. Did you ever come across that? So they... They were like a Bondi crew and they, they basically created a national holiday for garage sales. Fuck yeah. No, I have. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's still, they're still, that's still going strong. But I guess off the back of that, they went, wow, like people really like knowing their neighbours. 
they really like doing this on the ground community stuff. Like that's wow, people really actually really enjoy this. And uh, I think they looked at how, well, how can we do something that's year round instead of a one day a year garage sale trail. And, and they're all keen kind of gardeners as well. So they went, well, how about creating a community around gardening? And so we're really trying to go down that path of kind of like shaking off some of the old, you know, the old hang ups about gardening, you know, the old school, you know, horticulturalists, all amazing profession, amazing people. Easy. My dad's a horticulturalist. Yeah, no, I, and I, you know, I'll, I've you went to university with Don Burke. Oh, no one. Yeah, he didn't like it. I was about to say, not, yeah. not many people did. <laughs> <laughs> I think Don likes Don. Uh, but, you know, I think that there, there's, there's it's like, it's a bit daggy, you yeah. know? Daggy's th- a good word for well, it. Daggy's a good word, you know? It's not something that the cool kids are out there doing, or is it, you know, now, you know? Because we're, I think there's a lot of people that maybe were really on the kind of cultural vanguard in their 20s that, you know, have done very well for themselves and are now finding themselves moving up to the Northern Rivers and getting in the family way and going, actually, I'm, you know. Make some sauerkraut. Uh, yeah. I want to grow, I want to grow some of my own vegetables. I want to have chickens. I want my own eggs. I don't like, I don't want to go to the bar and farmer's market and, <laughs> and battle my way through there to get a dozen eggs. But I, when I've got enough space to have chickens of my own. So I feel like there's a lot of people that maybe were really what, like you probably may, maybe would consider cool. <laughs> you know, those people that were, you know, amazing musicians or artists or sports people uh, that in their prime were so focused on that craft that, you know, that they didn't garden, but now they're, they've kind of done really well for themselves and they're going, well, actually, what is it? What's it all about? What's life about? You know, and I've, I've kind of lived the high life. Can I, can I do this as well? Like, can this, is, is there actually a really high quality of life in connecting to the country where you are, whether that be in the city and you're connecting with the things growing on your balcony or you're on a small lifestyle block, connecting with the food that you put in your body through growing it, cooking it and preparing it and, and using that then as a tool to connect with your family and friends. And, for me, that's that. They're kind of the three pillars of every book that I write, or every kind of communication that I do. They're the kind of three pillars that I find, you know, are the are the kind of universal, universally appealing ones, or the universally relevant ones. That if if as an individual you can connect with the country around you, the food that you eat, whether through the growing of it or cooking it, and the sharing of it with your people, your tribe, then they are the kind of three most critical important factors for for human health and success. I reckon that if you can nail those three things, regardless of your income, as long as you've got a roof over your head and as long as you've got that kind of that connection to the world around you, then you're doing good. And, and there's a whole, you know, not a scientist, uh, not a psychologist, but there's a whole cascade of, of, of benefit that comes from it because we're hardwired to want those things. Again, if you kind of go back to that, that you know, pre-modern society, if you, if you knew where you were and you knew the country around you, it was your landscape, it was your town, your village, your, your valley, whatever – uh, and you had safe food and you had a secure family around you, then you were good. You know what I mean? There were yep. threats and problems. So, but when we have those things, it's just like, yes, okay, great. Life's good. Yeah. And, you know, we kind of, we are removed from those things in modern life. You know, whether we have no relationship to it or very little relationship to our food. Someone else grows it. Someone else cooks it often now and someone else brings it to your doorstep where you take it out of a little plastic container and eat it in front of the tv you don't have connection to your country because you kind of you live in your house you drive your car to your job and you don't really have that intimacy with the landscape around you you don't notice the change of the seasons except for what you've got to set the air conditioning to and we're increasingly isolated from our communities you know so that and they're each of those things I, i hope at least and i like to think they are a relatively accessible and democratic like it's not you know when you're in that kind of health and wellness space it can be it can really run the the risk of becoming elitist very quickly yep. you know like which is 
a lot of those kind of like Instagram, you know, wellness people are like, yeah, it's cool that you can do four hours of yoga a day and, and go and eat a vegan diet at a vegan cafe that you never have to prepare any of that food yourself. Like, yeah. good on you, power to you. It's great. You are in excellent health. But if you're talking to someone that's like raising a family, living in the burbs and working 50 hours a week, like it's not going to happen. Your information is useless to them. You know, it's aspirational, great, but, but they're never going to be able to apply it. But you can still have that, that small connection, you know. Even you don't, and I think we kind of get swept over in the, the concept of it, of it being like you've got to be self sufficient. That's so it's such bullshit. You don't like no one in their backyard is going to grow all their fruit and vegetables. And it's not about being self sufficient. It's about just having a small engagement with those three pillars initially and growing them as you see fit. Yeah, right. So dipping your toes into that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that, can, that can flourish to become something that is. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, because for anyone that has like started down that, that path of growing a little bit of their own food, you're just like that first time, and I mean, it, it starts with that pot of thyme or that pot of parsley at the back doorstep that you've actually, you're going to prepare a meal, you're cooking it at home, maybe not from scratch, you know, maybe it's a pasta, you bought the sauce, you bought the spaghetti, whatever, but then you go out and you take that little bit of, herb that you grew on your back veranda and chop it up and sprinkle over the top of your meal like that's amazing like you, that's not that's not self-sufficiency that's like a micro fraction of the calories and food that you consume but but that connection is real and it's there and the smugness and self-satisfaction that you feel smugness, on the back of that it that was the way you put it yeah yeah, yeah that's exactly it it's like that that oh, is it taste the time the in sixth that? flavor I yeah that time smugness <laughs> you know there's Umami is the fifth flavor. Smugness is the sixth, <laughs> and it's and it's so powerful, you know. And it's and it gives you that pride and that connection to the food that you're putting in your body. And I guess when you're growing it as well, there's a deeper level of acceptance. Uh, you know, I think that when you we spend so much time demonizing food that we eat, like sugar bad, carb bad, meat bad, whatever, dairy bad. Like there's so many bad foods out there for us that when you when you go to consume those foods, if you've been in that mindset. You know, you're like, oh, you know, I've been on this diet, but I'm actually kind of feeling like I need to embrace this ingredient that's been demonized. When you eat it, like your body's kind of automatically priming it to be bad. Yeah. You know, there's that psychological connection. You go, this isn't good, but I'm eating it anyway because I need it for, you know, for my well-being. But oh, oh, oh. Whereas I'm going to pay for this. Yeah, I'm going to pay for it, you know. Whereas if you have grown something yourself uh, and you're like, you're so excited about it. Like there's such a huge openness to, to, to letting that food into your, into your body, you know. I'm going. I'm getting a bit woo woo, Joe. No, I'm I think a bit it's. Esoteric, I, think it's mate. I think it's warranted, Paul. Mm. I was thinking um, this morning. I was talking to a couple of the guys that I was training. I made a batch of chili sauce Ooh. at the beginning of lockdown. One of the girls in the gym. She she works. At, she manages a pub, and the kitchen had to offload a bunch of stuff. They had oh. a bunch of perishables, ah. and she said, "Hey, I got this tub of habaneros. Do you want them?" Oh. And I was like, "Yeah, I'll take them." And Please. so I made this. This I took those habaneros, and then I asked. Um, Panavore Cafe, which where we at, like, where we had breakfast oh, last so time. I don't know if you remember the chili sauce they have, but they oh. have this excellent habanero sauce they use. And I asked for their recipe, and Tree was like, "Here is the recipe." Oh. I will not share it beyond yes, you know, it was no, it was no, a no. one time. Thing. Don't ask. But I made it, and then I I, I customized it with a little bit of mango in there, so oh. like a mango habanero oh. lime. Anyways, I gifted it to a bunch of people, and I've still got a shitload of it. I intended to bring you some, and I totally forgot. I you know, I'm back next week. I can do it. Yes, I can make that work. <laughs> um, but I, I offered it to a couple of guys hey, who I, I had given a bottle to. And I was like, hey, you guys want it? And they were like, oh, fuck yeah, we want another bottle. Yeah, please. That. Like, that it's gone. Awesome. Yeah, last two days. The, the, um, like I enjoy that so much to be able to, like for them to love it and then for me to give it to them yeah. and for them to love it again. And they yeah, send me yeah. photos of, oh, look what I made with the sauce. And 
they're proud of the meal that they made. Yes. And, you know, and those and that that I think that sort of in a way for me that kind of encapsulates the whole thing. Absolutely. Where it's like something you produced with your hands, uh, whether you grew it or you built it or you cooked it or whatever, and you can share it with others. There is something very. Um, very deeply human about that. Yes. And it's the, the experience is so much greater than the sum of its parts in that circumstance. You know, you're just like, oh, I made a sauce, I gave it to someone, big deal. But then, you know, as you said, that that sense of ownership and pride and, and humanity that you get from it, like it's, it's, it's what makes us tick, you know? And it's unfortunately something that's when you're in, because uh, doing that involves production, right? You have to be a producer to be able to do that. And so much of what we do now is consumption, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not going to bang on about capitalist consumer society, blah, blah, blah. But even a lot of us in our work, it's, it's, it's hard to create something tangible often. Like it's not, you know, not everyone's a craftsperson out there coopering barrels on a daily, day-to-day basis. You know, you do spreadsheet work and you, you spend eight hours at the coalface. You come home and you're like, well, I've got a few more, few more entries on the spreadsheet to show for it. So, and I find that people that work in those non-tangible but very important roles get even more enjoyment out of producing something. Something as simple, and it really can be something, something as simple as cooking a meal. And I love, uh, the other, so I guess what I love is communicating to people how accessible gardening can be if you don't beat yourself up about it and you set realistic expectations about it and take those proper beginner steps instead of actually trying to be like, you know, full on Don Burke about it. Um, and the same goes with cooking, cookery. Because we spend so much time absorbing food media through our phones, through our televisions, through our screens, and, you know, and, and a program say like MasterChef, where in its early seasons they were doing stuff like apricot chicken and shepherd's pie, right? You know, yeah. and, and so shit that other people could do. So you would to. watch that and go, yeah. oh, I can do that. You know, I can, I'm going to give that a go. I've never cooked apricot chicken before, but I saw that guy on MasterChef do it, and he's a regular person, just an average average punter. I can do that too. Whereas now, in that nature of TV escalation or, you know, or kind of jeopardy increasing that, that happens in subsequent seasons of, of shows or, or programs that now it's like, oh, we can't do that. That was season one. We're in season 13 now. Now we need to be, you know, making him do 24 step, 100 component, you know, yep. three Michelin star dishes because that's where it's at. And so then you see, you know, if you watch that as a person at home on the couch, you don't see that and have that empathetic experience from it. You look at that and go, oh, that's an average person like me and they're cooking this dish which they should be able to do because it's the challenge and they've totally bombed it and they're getting judged and they're breaking down and they're crying and they're like I don't know I don't know about cooking I don't know it's just a bit it's a bit too <laughs> I don't need that on a Monday I night I don't need that on a, I'm not going to do that I'm like and oh, so I'm, if I cook at home there's an expectation that I'm cooking restaurant food and then it will be judged yeah uh, okay, so, you know, because we're deeply empathetic beings, humans, and when we see things, we relate to them, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. So I like to, like, show the basic, just the basic stuff. It's just, like, you can just get one nice ingredient, you know, like whether it's a carrot that you grew yourself or, or like, a, maybe a nice bit of meat that you got your hands on and just let it shine, you know. You don't, like, the, the, the whole idea of, like, oh, you've got to do this and this and I've got this secret ingredient that I add to it. No, if you've got a good, something good, one good thing, you can just, with a little bit of skill, like a tiny bit of skill and understanding, you can really make that the star of everything you do. We overcomplicate things yep. always in life. It's another classic human trait. Like we always have lack that confidence in ourselves to do things simply, you know, unless you really got to the stage where actually you realise that simplicity is where it's at. And I mean, I think that's true in so many human skills. You see people go through that initial learning phase, then they overcomplicate it, and then when they come to mastery, they go, oh, actually... It's the, it's the basics yep. that matter. And that when, as a master, I know the basics, but I know so many depths of level more 
than when I did when I was learning these same basics as a beginner. And so I think, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of power in just like getting one good ingredient, having the confidence just to let that shine and not overcomplicating it. And don't, don't, you know, don't beat yourself up. Don't think that some guy on a cravat's going to judge you if you cook something and make a mistake. Big deal. Matt, Matt Preston. Oh, Matt. Oh, Matt. He's actually a really nice guy. I've met him a couple of times. I worked on the show for a while. Did you? Back in the day, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, he was, I mean, he was kind of nice. Yeah. I got along better with the other two. Yeah, kind of nice like, in that, you know. He didn't engage too much with yeah. the help, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was a lighting guy. Weird power structure going on there as well, isn't there? Yeah. that. The kind of. The, talent, the key talent or the host talent, the yeah. big dogs, and then the contestants and then the crew. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that for me, you know, because that's an industry that I work in as well, I've never been on anything as, as kind of like high production as, um, say, MasterChef. But I'm a presenter, right? Like I kind of do national broadcast TV for the ABC. And uh, I guess I feel like the reason why I've repeatedly got work is because I like to function as a crew member. Right. You know, it's like I'm, my role is to communicate the information in front of the camera, but it's not like a just don't make eye contact. Like I'm here, <laughs> I'm going to be in my room. Like I'm not going out for dinner with you guys. Like I'm doing my shit, you know. I've got, I've got, to, I've got to manage my socials actually and then I've got to do a <laughs> detox and then I've got to do some yoga and so I'll see you tomorrow at the call time. Uh, but really, like and I get to do a lot of, you know, fortunately a lot of like remote shoots for a program like Backroads because I can drive a manual in the bush and I can carry stuff. Because camera assistants don't exist anymore. Yeah, right. The budget's gone for camera assists. So, but all the gear's still there. So you got to help out. Yeah, so I help out. I carry tripods. I carry pelly cases. I like load stuff up. I like, and universally, I drive because I hate being in the car with a director or a producer driving. Right. Because they're just like their mind is not on the road. Yeah. And they usually, you know, especially when you're rural, like at a rural or remote shoot, and they're like they're generally inner city dwellers and they've like they've never gone more than 60 k's an hour for the last you know six months and yep. now they're out in the bush in a full drive in a full drive they're trying to talk to you they're trying to like manage a call sheet they're trying to look at the next location they're trying to call the talent and they're driving i'm like pull the fuck over i'm going to drive like i don't need to do any of that stuff <laughs> i can concentrate on driving it's cool yeah, it's yeah. cool i'm going to do that and you just <laughs> micromanage your life over there because i don't want to die basically on the way to the next shoot mate we had some funny times thinking about um, shoots that we did in remote locations. Mm. I remember that one of the last ones I did was a, a terrible reality show called um, Excess Baggage. Oh, and it was where they took a bunch of like washed up stars <laughs> oh, and kind of classic. you know like Z grade, B grade celebrity, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, you know, they had like um, Britney Spears' ex boyfriend, <laughs> like guys <laughs> like him, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and we took them oh. to uh, we took them to Kananara, oh, like Northern WA, yeah, and uh, it was. It was like 40 plus degrees out. Like oh, it that's hot. Northwest And they had hot. to do physical challenges. Oh. And the idea was that they'd be pushed to breaking point. Mm -hmm. And they had like a physical trainer that would do that. And then they also had like a psychologist that would help them work through shit. And oh. that was the excess baggage. Oh. Plus there was a weight loss challenge. Oh. Title. And um, oh, the whole goddamn platoon was dropping like flies. Oh. Like the, the actors were getting fucking choppered out of there because yep. they were dropping down due to heat stroke. But then like crews started to yeah. drop. Producer, assistant director, like it was a total fucking debacle. Yeah, and you know we're all out there, and it's like you know we all got like special boots for it, yeah, and we're yeah. going out fucking SPF fifty hats, hats and yeah, all that stuff. But it's just like we're a bunch of city slickers, yeah, and really we're surviving out here because there's a couple of local rangers who are keeping us all in check. Yes, telling us don't go in there because there's crocs. Yeah, don't park your car on that; you'll get bogged. Like, and it just it, it was kind of absurd in a sense. Ah, oh, and there's such there's such like a big chaotic show. 
those things. Like, uh, we, you know, we've had a couple of my friends have been, you know, on the South Coast, uh, you know, had like, I think it was Love at First Sight on one of those programs, <laughs> hit them up about using their venue as a location. Right. And I was like, do not. Absolutely do it not. It will be destroyed. It will be destroyed. And they're like, they're like, oh, well, they're, they're not... They, they said they can't pay me this really good exposure. I'm like, don't oh. let them play that card. Don't Holy let them play shit. that card. If they're, if they're not paying location fee, tell them to piss off <laughs> because they're going to come in with 20, 30 people. They're going to take over your whole place. They're going to move all your shit around. It's going to be chaos and you're, you're going to get a little bit of so-called exposure on the back yeah. of it. Like it's, it's a classic. But I mean, it's a great, it's a great industry. Like, and I mean, I'm- I love I'm, First Sight. It's a great yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> classic. Yeah, it's really high tide mark of Australian, Australian television. But, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm lucky I work for the ABC and it's still, everything's very low budget at the ABC. It's all kind of um, very small crews. And, um, and the good thing about it is that there's like, there's still like a universal kind of sympathy or, or, or love for the ABC. Sympathy is not the right word, but especially when you go into regional Australia, you know, I'll, oh, who you guys shooting for with the ABC? Like, oh, the ABC. Oh, the ABC. Oh, we love the ABC. We love the ABC out here. It's all we've got <laughs> out in regional Australia. So it's it's nice. And explain that to me for because for me growing up in the city, it was just another channel. Yes. But w- how does it differ from Channel Seven, Nine, Ten? Yeah. Well, okay. So it's it's a a publicly funded though independent organisation, and this is something that I've had like a, you know various people, a couple of people try to drag me over the coals over lately with the conspiracies. You know, some of my friends who are a little bit more down the, you know, the red pill path yep. than others going, so where does the ABC's funding come from? I'm like, oh, it comes from the taxpayers. Yeah, but doesn't, isn't that the government? And I'm like, well, it's actually from the taxpayers. The government, yes, I guess, facilitates that, but they've got no power over the ABC other than through the legislation of the ABC's charter. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. Look into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've said all you need to say, mate. Okay, government <laughs> funded. Yeah, government mouthpiece. Mainstream media. That's what you are. Anyway, <laughs> so really the ABC has a really like highly regulated charter to, to, as a public broadcaster to make sure that it, that it, that it um, adheres to and displays the values of Australian culture. But not, uh, not as in the like Australian culture, mate. You know, VBs and bloody old utes and the footy and white Australia. Like it's actually much more diverse than that about giving a voice to all Australians, right? No matter what their kind of demographic or background. And, and it's beautifully a really highly accountable organisation. And, and in particular, it's, it's in its charter to have a voice for regional Australia. Yeah. Uh, and so the ABC is really one of the only broadcasters that, that does it because there's no commercial imperative. You know, whenever you see uh, like one of the major, you know, 7, 9, 10 go to the country, it's always with an inner city journal reporter that's stopped off at Strand Hatters. Uh, bought a new Akubra, picked themselves up a nice plaid shirt yep. from, from the RM Williams Outfitters and a new pair of RM boots and they're off to the country. Yeah. You know, classic. Here, I'm out in the country. Look at this. I've got my country clothes on, everyone. Hey, I've got my country clothes on, you know. I'm, I'm one of you guys. And it's usually either there for sensationalism, you know, around droughts, fires, floods, disasters, that kind of stuff, or as like a kind of patronising scene in a reality TV show. Yep. where they like take the contestants out to a country date and they dress them up in that said Akuba and boots and plaid and sit them on some hay bales and like, oh, look, our contestants are in the country. How <laughs> quaint. Whereas the ABC uh, does a much better job of telling the voice of real rural Australians. Right. Which is like what I do with Backroads. It's amazing. It's my favourite job to go on. You know, we visit, you know, very small townships all over Australia and we just, we meet the people, you cool. know. And it's not about me, which is the best part. Like I kind of go there as the viewer and I just get to meet really interesting people doing interesting stuff on the fringes of our continent, you know, or in the center of our continent all over the place. And, 
you know, just meeting people that are just living interesting lives, doing interesting things and get to ask them questions. It's amazing. Man, you're the guy for the job. I'm the guy for the job. I'll just get out there and I'll carry the tripod while I'm at it. <laughs> What's the, what are you here for? What are you in Sydney for right now? So I'm here uh, because I'm two thirds of a way for a shoot for, for Catalyst, for the yep. ABC program, um, ABC program, science program Catalyst. So we, um, and I mean, this is, this is a tough job. Uh, they really had to twist my arm for this one. We're doing a one hour documentary on the science of brewing beer. Oh wow! I <laughs> know oh, it's a tough. So there has been stages uh, over the last couple of weeks where I have been paying, been getting paid good money to drink beer, uh, and great beer, you know, from the from the kind of some of the better practitioners in Australia around it. So it's it's great. We've got a we've got kind of three groups of just everyday people, or two three teams of two, and their challenge is to brew a beer. Okay. Uh, they, we we. Before we started filming, we got them to do a little like DIY film yourself homebrew to kind of get them a little bit up to speed with some of the terminology and practice, uh, which was, of course, you know, resulted in very mixed outcomes. Uh, and then now they've teamed up with a professional brewer and they're in a small batch in Petersham and they're doing a 500 litre brew. Oh, wow. And so then we look at, you know, we use that the narrative of the competition uh, in the kind of very friendly ABC competition way. We're not trying to like make people cry and get in their face of the producer yeah. and being like, so... Cheat so, on your wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go on, do it. You know, she's right there. Give her a kiss. Go on. Um, and then uh, and then using that, the, the the stages of that competition brew to, to tell the science behind it and just looking at yeasts and malting and algaes and, and it's, it's really fascinating. It's quite simple, you know. It's like cool. bread. Beer's like bread. It's like four ingredients, like yeast, uh, malt, water... And um, what am I missing there? Hops. hops. Yep, hops. And, uh, and, but within that, you know, as, as in, again, with something like sourdough bread, uh, there's so much variation and complexity. Yeah. So much you can do. And, and really, it's, there's a lot about biology. There's a lot about chemistry with, like, the Malleot effect of malting, you know, malting barley. All the reactions that happen with hops is fascinating. It's going to be a great watch. I don't, but I don't know that I'll ever get paid to drink beer again in my life, unfortunately. I don't really drink that much beer, but this time I've been, you know, went in Rome. Why part not? Of the gig. Why not? Part of the gig. Someone's got to do it. I'm not going to spit it in a bucket. What's the deal? You go out, try some a little bit, but yeah. then you're hanging out at the place, you finish yeah. up for the day. Exactly. You guys want to sit around and have exactly. a Exactly. You Beautiful. know, you're there with the head brewers yep. and they're like, yeah, well, you guys, you're shooting off. Like, here, try this, try this, try this. Yep. Try this 12 red porter, 12% red porter. Like, oh. um, but yeah, no, it's been, it's been really good. And it's, I've swelled a lot of beers. That's in cool. the last, you know, in the kind of like fancy glasses. I've been doing a lot of this, a lot of the kind of like nose and the, ooh, oh, yes, very interesting bouquet there. That's, uh, <laughs> but no, they're, they're, a, they're a fun bunch, the brewers of the inner west. And I guess it's really given me an appreciation of just what a, like a unique kind of culture there is around brewing in the inner west. Like it's, it's really – it's, it's huge, isn't it's it? It's massive, you know, yeah. and it's really interconnected and it's independent and there's all this kind of like idea and knowledge sharing and friendly competition and, and, and also, you know, for anyone that's – has access to going and drinking in these places. Really great beers. Mate, have you, um, did, uh, they might be a bit too big for the, what you guys carry. Have you had anything to do with Young Henry's? We did. We, uh, we had a look at their algae biofermenter. Oh, wow. So they're working with. Oh, the, is that them doing that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So they're, so they're working with the, the um, University of Tech Sydney, UTS, and their climate cluster. So they've got a, like a, a professor of climatology there. And they're looking at all these kind of different, you know, climate change actions one of which is um the use of algaes and 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 micro microbiology in in addressing waste streams so brewing i mean one of the one of the elements of their carbon footprint is the release of carbon dioxide from the brewing process right yeast releases carbon dioxide 
So they're looking at ways that can minimise that. And so UTS has found a, a you know a strain of um, algae that that happily digests carbon dioxide. So they they basically keep these big clear cylinders at Young Henry's. They inoculate it with a small amount of algae that was initially isolated and then bred up to a somewhat commercial quantity at UTS. And then through the brewing process, the carbon dioxide is pumped into these tanks. The algae eats it, the algae expands, and then they take it and they, I think in this circumstance, they mix it with stock feed uh, to feed to cattle to, you know, you've probably heard about um, seaweed reducing methagenesis in stock. So they're no. talking about feeding, you know, adding seaweed as a, an additive to, to, to livestock feed, cattle in particular in the dairy and the feedlotted industries to minimise that methane production. And so by having a, a small percentage of algae or seaweed in their diet, it actually stops or significantly reduces methagenesis. Wow. So that's kind of looking at, well, okay, if we can make, you know, an amendment uh, that's a byproduct from another industry, then then feed it to the cows, and, and then all of a sudden their, their methane output has significantly dropped, then then we're kind of in a different space agriculturally when we're looking at overall carbon emissions. Wow. So, so the great thing there is like, so you can have a beer and you can kind of ideally have the steak and be like, I'm doing my bit for the planet. That's right. I can have my, have my pub feed and I'm doing something good. That's cool. So, yeah, and I mean, that's, that's just like... It's like a rock and roll show at Young Henry's. It's so like it's so far from my like pokey little suburb, you know, um, regional existence in a little seaside village, like motorbikes and tats and black singlets and long hairs. Yep. And I'm like, oh, this is this is great. It's so cool. Man, they like I I met uh, one of the owners, Oscar, yep. years ago through some some guys that friends of mine who trained at our gym, who were just friends of his, and and they were like, oh, some friends of ours have started a beer company. It's called Young Henry's. Oh, Apparently they're doing good. all right. Yeah. And um, anyway, I remember getting in touch with him because I wanted to do some kind of collaboration with him. Oh, nice. And we, we did some stuff. They ended up giving us some kegs, which we had for a, which we actually have out the front. We'll use them to, for like irregular object lifting. Yes. Um, but like, they were like, man, if you guys need anything, just hit us up. And we're like, hey, we're having a <laughs> Christmas party. And they're like, we got Sweet. you. They dropped off a few kegs, dropped what? off a pump. We're like, how much do you uh, want for this? They're like, don't no, worry about you it. You guys are cool. The next year around, like, you need some more beer for the Christmas party? Like, just really fucking cool guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, doing it for the love of it. And they've obviously made a very, you know, uh, been very successful with it. smashing it. Yeah. It's the big show over there now. It's unbelievable. I mean, like, what's what's happening there in, what is it, Newtown, I think? It was in that, yeah. you know, kind of... Or not Town really. anymore. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that's just, that's kind of like the forward-facing component of their operation now. Like, they've got a big show somewhere else across the country yeah exactly yeah, you know right. so that's that's the, the the heart and soul of it still there but like but now they're so far beyond that little brewery so in the cool. inner west. that's amazing it, and you just yeah, exactly you just to watch people that are just passionate about something and just giving it a, a red hot go and then to see them go on to that you know that kind of success where i mean i really I, like i find that that evolution really fascinating where you kind of go from passion you know to business person but still maintain the passion Groundswell you know, BJJ. Yeah, Groundswell BJJ. Hit me up on the South Coast. <laughs> Southern Australia's premier training facility. Yeah, and only. Yeah, that's Pemigui's <laughs> first and only uh, jiu-jitsu gym. <laughs> we, can't, we can't give you a belt, but we can give you a belting. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's, um, that's a good spot for us to wrap it up on. Nice. Can you... Uh, can you give a bit of a plug to where people can find the book? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, after November 18, I'm not sure when this is going to go to air, but November 18 is publication day. From then, uh, all good book retailers. I mean, it's, it'll be literally everywhere. So 
Booktopia, whatever. Uh, obviously, my preference is for you to support small independent book retailers. I mean, you might save a couple of bucks if you get it from Booktopia, but if you've got a local bookshop, please get it from them because it makes a big difference. You know, yep. Booktopia is Australia's Amazon. It's massive. They do an amazing job, uh, you know, being that big scale, but they don't need your money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Your little book retailer that's that's been shut for the last six months and really dependent on retail, they need your business. So get it from the independent guys if possible, um, or you can get it directly from me. Directly from you? Yeah, I'm a small independent book retailer as well. How do they find you? So uh, it's actually, I've got it on the, because we're trying to drive like a little bit of kind of numbers around the Grow It Local platform, which is probably another totally separate conversation. So growitlocal.com, it's on the landing page there. Okay, cool. And uh, I've got a copy for you, so don't stress. My man. It's your Christmas present sorted. Dude, it's perfect timing. I've got the new place. It's got oh. a shitty old garden. Oh. And I'm, I'm keen to rejuvenate it and grow some shit, so I'm going to follow it. Perfect. I'll follow it. I'll journey the. I'll I'll, I'll detail the journey on social media. It'll yeah. be the ultimate case study. Oh, love it, Matt. I'll share it. Great, <laughs> yeah. thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, such a pleasure, mate. Man, thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you on, and uh, I look forward to doing some rolling. Can we go for a beer afterwards? We sure can, Matt. Awesome. All right, brother Paul. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, guys. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Please help support the show if you dug it. Share that episode with a friend who you think would like to hear it. Uh, it goes a long way for us. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you guys next week.